Uh, our learning objectives, three potential problems of inadequate sodium intake. I'd like you to have those clear in your head. Explain how to reverse salt sensitivity, another issue altogether, but an important one as we discuss this uh, kind of topic. And then identify a safe sodium intake range for those with type 2 diabetes and identify foods which are highest in potassium. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about sodium. Well, uh, you'll get on as we get as we start moving. Uh, low sodium has been encouraged because of, uh, of course, the hypertension piece of things. And if we look at the disease, we see there are some risk factors here, age over 60, male, uh, race, African-Americans tend to be higher risk. Heredity, that is, it can be passed down. This whole business of salt sensitivity is another issue. Obesity is an important part as part of the metabolic syndrome, and you know hypertension kind of fits with that. Inactivity, uh, heavy alcohol consumption, and oral contraceptives can raise that uh, just a bit as well. So what causes hypertension? Well, uh, 90 to 95% of it is essential hypertension. When patients ask me about this, I, what is essential hypertension? I say, well, essentially that means we don't know what causes it. And, and uh, of course, I say that with a little bit of uh, tongue in cheek, but that's changed, obviously. If you talk to the hypertensive people, they still say it's essential. We don't know. If you talk to the metabolic syndrome people, they talk about vascular uh, inflammation, uh, increase of free radicals, uh, loss of endothelial relaxing factor, and things like that that are raising this, uh, uh, the blood pressure. We, so we understand that essential hypertension is in most cases uh, attached to the metabolic syndrome. So uh, renal artery stenosis, I know I've had some patients uh, who wanted to do aggressive lifestyle change and things just weren't changing like they were supposed to, send for an ultrasound of the renal arteries, find a stenosis, get that opened up with an intervention, and what do you know, uh, blood pressure comes down, blood pressure medications are not needed, and the lifestyle change can continue. Cushing syndrome, of course, tends to run the uh, blood pressure up with cortisol. Hyperaldosteronism, kind of the same thing. Adrenal tumors. I've had um, my one lifetime opportunity to see a patient with uh, a uh, tumor that was really driving that blood pressure high from the adrenal. Theochromocytoma, we call it. Uh, blood vessel diseases uh, can also be associated, uh, as well as thyroid. Uh, some medications can raise blood pressure. And of course, alcoholism tends to be a problem. And of course, we focus on sodium. You've probably heard these uh, uh, discussions ad nauseum. Salt, table salt, sodium chloride. Uh, and then there's monosodium glutamate. And baking soda is sodium bicarbonate, at least in part. Baking powder has baking soda in it and kind of a double acting sort of a thing. And then there are other places as well. So there's this concern that too much sodium can cause trouble. Along with that is something called uh, sodium sensitivity and hypertension. And some people respond uh, to lowering the salt better than others. We think those are, uh, uh, or those have something called salt sensitivity. So what are the risk factors for salt sensitivity? Well, those that tend to be most sensitive are older folks, black folks, Obese folks, and that really goes along with the metabolic syndrome. For metabolic syndrome itself, 
tends to increase uh, salt sensitivity. I think I have a slide towards the end that kind of helps to explain some of that. Uh, lower renin levels, uh, family history of sodium sensitivity. Several years ago, actually twice now, I've heard uh, lectures postulate that the reason African-Americans have such a high salt sensitivity is that uh, because the way they came to this, uh, this continent, this side of the world, uh, from Africa, where salt was as good as sodium, was as good as money, right? So they're put in ships, and uh, most got a dysentery of some kind on the way across the ocean. Often, a large percentage of them died on the ship, so only those with the genes that could hang on to sodium better than anybody else actually survived. So there's a gene pool that tends to uh, encourage this uh, salt, uh, sodium sensitivity. Uh, you may remember the DASH diet, the, the group of people in the DASH study that responded most to uh, lowering sodium was the elderly black female who was obese. And the average drop in blood pressure for those folks was about 18 millimeters of mercury. So for some people, they're, they're very salt sensitive. Maybe hard for us to understand clinically or identify clinically, but we know that that happens. Those with dyslipidemia, again, uh, associated with the metabolic syndrome, and of course, chronic kidney disease, which the body has a hard time excreting and the blood pressure just tends to go up. So what are the guidelines for Americans? The Institute of Medicine has uh, uh, identified uh, 2.3 grams per day or less. And also 95.2% of Americans get excessive, that is over that 2.3 grams per day. Now, sodium and potassium kind of work together and you're gonna find as we go through this that your potassium intake may be as important as your sodium intake. So let me kind of put that up here uh, first as well. Institute of Medicine recommends potassium greater than 4.7 grams per day and 98.6 of American, the American population as per the NHANES National Health and Nutrition Examination Study, uh, are deficient, are not getting the recommended daily allowance of potassium. So let's start our journey into the science by looking at this uh, 2014 meta-analysis done by uh, Niels Gradal et, et al. They, they took a look at uh, 274,683 individuals in 23 different cohorts including two randomized controlled trial follow-up studies. Uh, there's no randomized controlled trials in healthy individuals. And I'll state here that it's very difficult to do real randomized controlled trials with sodium and to look at it long-term. So the purpose of this was to decide or try to understand what effect sodium had on uh, disease, on death in particular. Now, down below at the bottom of the chart, you can see the bottom of the slide. There's zero, that would be zero grams of sodium a day. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So sodium levels are kind of going up. And, and this is a foreshortened level in Japan. There are reports of people averaging, oh, 17, 19 grams of sodium a day. So this is certainly looking more at our population, although there are individuals and populations that take a lot more sodium. You can see that the population range runs between about 2.7 to 4.9 and kind of within the confidence intervals of you know, what's average. 
Uh, American Heart Association is recommending 1.5 grams. Institute of Medicine says, Medicine says the upper limit of uh, acceptable is 2.3. And the adequate intake is uh, down in the kind of 1.2 to 1.5 range. So that kind of gives us a picture of where we are as a population. And uh, we'll kind of see as we go how this meta-analysis comes up. So in order to uh, kind of look at this meta-analysis, they had to have rules to look at the uh, studies that were available. There are uh, a good number of them. They excluded those that were advised to take low sodium. Well, that's kind of a bias by indication. You tell people, and how are things going to be? Added potassium or recommended weight loss, both of those are confounders to this whole business. And then they controlled for confounders that they couldn't uh, uh, exclude. Sex, age, BMI, smoking, ethanol use, diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, hypertension, diuretic use, total energy intake, potassium, cholesterol, and education level. So uh, kind of a good look at the literature. What did they find? Well, this is rather interesting. Um, this is the results of all of those studies. They also included, and this is kind of a second analysis, the NHANES 1 and NHANES 3, National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. This is the federal government looking at the population and saying, how are they living? Uh, what are things like for them? This, this is an, now an ongoing sort of thing, the first 50 years. It was done every 10 years, kind of like a census. Now it's an, uh, an ongoing evaluation of the nation's health. So using the data that they had from the NHANES uh, and putting it in, this is kind of what happens. It's rather interesting. Please uh, notice the, the kind of average population ranges is green in the middle. And they decided in this evaluation to look at the sodium intake in the, the way Americans eat it. So they divided it into two. There's kind of the lower average sodium and the upper average sodium between 3.8 and 4.9. And they compare that with greater or lesser amounts of uh, sodium intake. And please notice how it comes out. Uh, usual salt uh, versus low salt, it ends up that there's an increase in mortality of about uh, 9%. On the high end, high salt versus usual salt, you start to see heart disease going up and stroke going up by 14 and 21% respectively. So that's very interesting. They also looked at that middle section, the kind of lower average and upper average to see if it made any difference. And you can see there was no real variation in uh, either all-cause mortality or heart disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke. So maybe this uh, sodium kind of range that we're in right now is not as dangerous as we thought it was. Another study that has come out to help us under the, understand, and it, I, I think the, uh, the next year or so it came out, called the PURE study. Uh, prospective cohort of 101,945 people from five continents. They used early morning fasting urine samples. You know, it's really hard to figure out how much sodium someone takes by talking to them. Nutritionists trying to evaluate are, are also inaccurate. So one of the ways that this is done is with a kind of early morning 
fasting urine sample and then measure, for example, the sodium and the potassium and other things, figuring that people kind of eat an average amount on average and that each morning the uh, urine sample would reflect that for uh, sodium in and sodium out is generally in balance within our body. Uh, the exact way of doing this best is kind of hard. I guess uh, usually uh, the literature is telling us a 24-hour urine is going to be more accurate, and we'll find some studies where they actually did that. Of course, you don't do that over time. Usually it will be done at intervals and uh, followed, but it helps to kind of stratify the population. When you're dealing with a lot of people, it, it, it can it give answers. They were given a questionnaire for medical history and medications. Uh, their primary endpoints were all-cause mortality, just like the previous one, uh, cardiovascular disease, both stroke, MI, and CHF. Uh, they did some interesting exclusions in their analysis. Uh, they may have uh, removed those that had coronary artery disease or those that had cancer or any uh, first two-year events, and, and they kind of ran the analysis several different times. 95% uh, follow-up over 3.7 years sounds pretty good to me as far as data. And this is how it came out. Please notice that there is a U-shaped curve. When the sodium was down closer to less than three grams, the mortality was actually higher than it was in the six to seven gram range. This is a little bit of a surprise to those who look at it. Please notice each line with each different color kind of has a different uh, uh, analysis, you know, univariate versus multivariate versus excluding baseline uh, heart disease, including diet and blood. So each one of these, but you can see that the overall pattern is sodium gets too low, mortality and heart disease and strokes tend to go up. Sodium then as it uh, increases on average in three to four, four to six, pretty level in there. And then you start getting up greater than seven grams and we're looking at high sodium intake and we start to see disease again. Now, fortunately, this study also looked at potassium. And I, I know I've already introduced this concept of potassium, but look at uh, this uh, graph, which is the same data, same patients, but now looking at their uh, potassium. If the potassium is too low, mortality is highest. The more potassium, the lower the mortality. Kind of interesting. And remember, uh, the average American is uh, some, for those greater than two years of age, from NHANES is about 2.64 grams. And remember that the recommended daily allowance is, I think it's supposed to come up with my next click here. Yeah, there it is. So the recommended daily allowance is 4.7 grams. So there's just, uh, uh, we're not getting enough of this potassium, and that may be a really important part of this whole disease process. Now, uh, as I got, found this data, I said, man, this is really interesting. But you know, I'll bet there's some diseases where sodium uh, restriction is gonna be really important. And the first one I jumped on to figure out was diabetes. When you got diabetes, you've got to keep your sodium down. Well, you know, this is the first thing I ran across, uh, published in 2014, actually done in Australia. Uh, people followed for nine and a half years, 
And looking at their urine, these folks, interestingly, use the 24-hour urine collection to look at sodium restriction. And please notice in the Kaplan-Meier uh, curves here that those who did the best had the higher sodium intake, six grams per day, versus 2.26 in the lowest. And I mean, you're looking at about a 25, 20, eight, no, 22, I guess, 22, 28% mortality in the group that had the lowest sodium. That's uh, interesting. Obviously, it's observational over time, so it's prospective, but it doesn't really answer the whys. It just raises some very interesting questions. It may support what we've looked at already from Gradal's and uh, the Pure study. Now, the second disease that I knew was going to be important was uh, congestive heart failure. I mean, we, we've all been there, right? Uh, in the emergency room, the evening after Thanksgiving, there's going to be, you know, a dozen people or more who come in with their congestive heart failure, exacerbations caused by having too much good food. And we've often blamed that on the sodium. I was very surprised to find out uh, that that is not necessarily the case. So on-target and transcend trials were evaluated. Uh, people with congestive heart failure, 28,880 patients. Mean sodium intake of 4.77 uh, grams per day. So within kind of the average uh, range for the average American, they followed people over 4.6 years. Now, there were a lot of data points. And in this graph, I have reproduced only those that are statistically significant. The rest of them I left off so it wouldn't be quite so confusing. Please note that cardiovascular death has a U-shaped uh, kind of curve to it. And those in that range of four to 5.99 grams per day actually had the lower death rate. MI uh, follows a similar pattern, although it's not so strong on the low side. Stroke and uh, hospitalization for congestive heart failure uh, also seems to, uh, the, especially the hospitalization, also seems to have a little bit of a U-shaped curve. It's not quite as dramatic as the cardiovascular death. How do I explain that? Especially in the light of the emergency room visits, which we've all seen, or office visits, which we've all seen. Well, it ends up that whenever you dramatically change your sodium intake, your blood pressure goes up and there's a stress on the body and it lasts for about three days. If the kidneys are functioning, after about three days, it, it normalizes. That blood pressure shoots up with a lot of salt, but then it drops. Uh, so uh, it drops back long-term if the sodium is left at that uh, uh, same intake level. So it, it may be the more rapid change in sodium that's ending up people ending people up in the emergency room rather than actually their total sodium. Now, this uh, uh, kind of evaluation by uh, O'Donnell et al. on the, on the uh, cardiovascular events also included potassium. So I'm happy to show you that. Uh, notice this, congestive heart failure tends to do better. And this is the stroke. The stroke in congestive heart failure patients tends to get better as the potassium goes up. And of course, this is greater than three grams per day is still quite a ways from what the recommendation is. 
but on target and transcend uh, trials are demonstrating that increasing potassium in the diet is beneficial for uh, long-term effects, stroke in particular. So what could be causing this? What is the problem with low sodium? Well, there are three mechanisms that are apparent in the literature that we can uh, use to explain what's happening. When sodium gets too low, the renin-aldosterone system is activated. And that system is uh, strongly associated with atherosclerosis. So that may be part of it. And of course, you know that uh, it also tends to raise blood pressure. There's also worsening insulin resistance, and the mechanism is not necessarily understood, but it's observed. The third thing is the increase in sympathetic tone. When sodium intake is too low, sympathetic tone goes up and blood vessels tend to constrict down. I've actually had now several patients once I've been, since I've been aware of this, who have tried to make intensive lifestyle changes to get off their blood pressure medications and improve their diabetes only to have their blood pressure very resistant. And when I identified that their sodium was intake was very low, I mean, they were committed to the lifestyle change and said, you need to take a little more sodium, their blood pressures dropped down, their diabetes continued to improve, and they were able to, uh, in, in uh, several cases, come off of blood pressure medication. So these are the three mechanisms, increased renin-aldosterone system activity, worsening insulin resistance and increased sympathetic tone. We may remember that that was one of our goals to get you to remember these things. So I'm going to remind you right up front. Okay, let's talk a little more about salt sensitivity. I promised you that it was an important topic. Uh, I really appreciate Weinberger's work. This is amazing work uh, that he has done and kind of followed over time. You'll see from the next slide. How do you measure salt sensitivity in the lab? It's not something we can do clinically. This is how it was done. He took 708 individuals aged 18 to 80, 44% women, 25% African-Americans, 39.3 had hypertension, the rest did not. He found 50% to be salt sensitive on his testing. So how did he do that? Well, what he did was to put them on three days of 0.25 grams of sodium a day, very, very low. At the end of that time, they were given three doses of Lasix to take out more sodium. I know Lasix, furosemide uh, is, uh, is called a water pill, but it's a sodium pill because it pulls sodium out of the body. So that uh, forced the sodium even lower than the diet. Then he loaded that uh, sodium, or loaded them back to sodium, with IV, two liters of normal saline over four hours, and he watched the mean arterial pressure. It went up, um, if it went over 10 millimeters of mercury, then they were considered sodium sensitive. If it was less than six, they were considered sodium resistant. Now, that's a very interesting process, not something you and I are gonna use clinically, but at the same time, uh, a way of differentiating and defining what that is. Well, look what happened to his patient. So this is uh, Dr. Weinberg's kind of following them for 25 years. So we've got N, R, H, and S. N is normotensive, R is salt resistant, H is hypertension, salt is salt sensitive. Please notice that in this Kaplan-Meier curve, 
the normal blood pressure with salt resistance has the best survival over the 25, 26 years. People who have normal blood pressure and are salt sensitive have about the same mortality as those that are hypertensive and have sodium resistance. That was a surprise to me. Salt sensitivity may be as important as high blood pressure. When you put the two together, of course, mortality is down about 40% out of 25, 26 years. So very interesting evaluation of salt sensitivity, following people over time. We got a problem with salt sensitivity, uh, but there's nothing we can do about it, right? It's hereditary. Well, I'm gonna show you differently, I think. So let's see what happens. But before we do that, the next one is a similar study done in Japan, reported in 1997, that in essence showed the same thing. Kaplan-Meier curves on 350 Japanese individuals looking at cardiovascular events, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, 38 versus 16%, et cetera. And so you can see those that had the, that were non-sodium sensitive had a much better outcome than those that were sodium. Okay, now reversal is the exciting part of this. So this is a small study, uh, but at least it's demonstrating you know, what's possible here. The black bars are the African-Americans in the study. There were uh, 24 of them. There were 14 Caucasians, and they're in kind of the uh, gray speckled uh, shorter bars. We would expect African-Americans to be more sensitive, uh, or more African-Americans to be sensitive to sodium. These were all normotensive people. They were given on average 5.75 grams of sodium per day. So that was left consistent. And then they were put on 1.17 grams per day of potassium. And notice the difference in that first bar. Uh, I've got the 1.17 in red below. As the potassium goes up, please notice that there is a decrease in the salt sensitivity in both the African-Americans and the Caucasian group. By the time you get up to 3.4 grams a day, the Caucasians have lost their salt sensitivity and the African-Americans have had that salt sensitivity decrease significantly. Now, apparently the authors were encouraged by this, but they said, maybe we should have gone up a little further on the potassium. So you see there's two um, studies at the bottom of the slide, and that's there because they went back and did it again with more potassium, a little closer to the recommended daily intake. And with that recommended daily intake, it ended up that salt sensitivity completely disappeared. And that's some pretty amazing information. If you can make salt sensitivity disappear, sodium sensitivity disappear by adding potassium, that's a really good thing. Where does potassium come from? Well, most of the potassium in our diet is from plants. We'll talk a little more about that as we move on. So there it is with the uh, highest amount, and, and you can see it just kind of disappeared. So to wrap up what we've covered at this point, you can see potassium at the top where the uh, uh, population range is, the uh, recommended daily allowance is still way off to the right. Um, and we, we'd like it for people to take more. 
sodium intake, and, and we've seen this slide before. And my argument here is our problem is likely not so much too much sodium, but inadequate potassium. If potassium will remove salt sensitivity, then uh, uh, sodium becomes much less of a problem, especially in kind of the average intake range. So what kind of foods do have potassium? Well, most of us look to bananas. Uh, you can see that's at the bottom of this uh, chart. This is taken from the USDA uh, website, uh, nutritional kind of uh, website, which is free for anybody to use. Uh, please notice that your soybeans, your beans have up to three times as much potassium as the bananas do. So that should be uh, a little bit of a surprise to some folks. Most people, when I say, where do you get your potassium, they'll tell me bananas. But there are, uh, the beans are really the best place to go for bananas. Next slide gives you a few more. You can see the uh, white beans, lima beans, uh, nonfat dry milk does even better than bananas. Then we have some uh, greens doing well, the tomatoes do well, prunes, potatoes. Who would have thought potatoes are high in potassium? And then to some of the uh, uh, animal products. So when I downloaded this from the USDA website, I downloaded both potassium and sodium and made a ratio out of it in a spreadsheet. And I, that's what I've made these slides out of. So you can actually see uh, kind of the, the balance between sodium and potassium in, in these foods. So I, I trust that'll be of some interest uh, to you. I guess we can notice that the cereals tend not to have so much potassium as uh, uh, the fruits and vegetables. And to come full circle on our potassium and beans, here is a meta-analysis looking at controlled feeding trials for beans called pulses. And what do you know, uh, beans in this meta-analysis show a decrease in blood pressure of about uh, two millimeters of mercury. So uh, I like to tell my patients, we're human beings, we need to eat beans. It'll help lower our blood pressure. Now, just to put this in uh, perspective, if you look at the overall picture for us, sodium restriction in the diet, if you move somebody to a low sodium diet who has high blood pressure, their average drop in blood pressure is somewhere around four to five millimeters of mercury. It is not that much. It, it is a rather a weak factor if you look long term. So the, the legumes are, are um, almost as good, let's put it that way. So uh, this particular study is one I ran across much more recently. I can't say that it's brand new, but I found it very interesting and it uh, sheds a whole new light on the concept of low sodium. This particular study was done in Japan. And as I have pointed out, the uh, Japanese tend to take a lot more sodium in than we do in this country. So this is an observer blind randomized controlled trial that took 70 patients, 48 men, uh, mean age of 63.5 with acute non-cardioembolic mild ischemic stroke. And the idea was to decrease the likelihood of a second stroke. So they were randomized in either into a lifestyle intervention group or a control group. Control group got usual care. The intervention group received kind of three uh, 
important activities. One, exercise. Number one, to encourage them to exercise. Decrease salt. Uh, they, they had a little uh, uh, educational program for folks on the computer. They had nutritionists talking to them. And increase potassium. At least that's the way the article said it. I know that increased potassium is code for more fruits and vegetables. But, uh, you know, the nutritionists were trying to help the patients do that. Well, notice what happened. They, they actually stopped this trial early. There was only one stroke in the intervention group, and there were 12 strokes in the usual care. So they thought it was unethical to continue. I saw this and I said, okay, I wanna know what was the low sodium? I mean, these are Japanese folks and they will often run 14, 16, 18 grams of sodium a day, depending on where they are. So uh, this is what they uh, told us. Uh, low salt post-stroke. The salt reduction program mainly uh, consisted of learning about the harmful effects of salt intake, how to reduce salt intake and periodic salt intake monitoring. We used a computer-based program, self-education program which, that we developed to provide knowledge about salt. And the salt intake monitoring was performed every six weeks. We set a short-term behavioral goal for daily salt intake based on the patient's self-efficacy with the final goal of reducing salt intake to less than, can you believe it? Nine grams of sodium a day. That was their low salt goal. And they got those results by increasing potassium and uh, increasing the exercise. They apologized in the article for not being able to get all their patients down to less than nine grams. So, uh, secondary outcomes, uh, the HDL uh, went uh, up in those on the uh, uh, lifestyle uh, intervention with the exercise, increased uh, potassium and lower sodium, and there was a lower blood pressure by about 13 millimeters of mercury uh, on average with an excellent p-value. And please uh, notice that uh, cardio CRP was not statistically significant, but it tended downward in those that had more of the plants. I suppose we shouldn't be uh, uh, surprised by that. I, that's to me an amazing story that uh, low salt is less than nine grams and you can have incredible lifestyle change, uh, incredible lifestyle improvement. Blood pressure can drop. Remember a low salt diet, a low sodium diet will drop the blood pressure on average about four to five millimeters of mercury. This one, with the exercise and everything, and sodium below nine grams, dropped at 13 millimeters of mercury. Maybe it's not the sodium that's so important here. I, I guess I'm driving that point home for you. So uh, here's kind of another uh, study, and the newer studies that are really looking at this must look at potassium as well. It's that sodium-potassium ratio that increases the risk. Uh, the studies listed for you here, I'm not going to go through it in detail except to read for you the conclusion. Higher sodium intake and higher diet, uh, dietary sodium to potassium ratio were associated with a higher risk of stroke. Reducing dietary sodium to potassium ratio can be considered as a supplemental approach in parallel with 
the decrease in sodium intake in order to decrease stroke risk. That is, increase the potassium can be a very reasonable goal uh, from looking at the data when you have both potassium and uh, sodium looked at. So the interpretation of the results is limited by observational nature of the studies examined. Again, randomized controlled trials actually looking at long-term sodium uh, or potassium intake are extremely difficult to do and ethically, uh, considered to be ethically impossible at this point. So it, the modern diet causes a bunch of problems. It's really not just the increased sodium, it's also the decreased potassium. Even increased chloride can have something to do with it. Decreased bicarb, increased hydrogen ions with a high acid load from uh, the uh, animal-based proteins being ingested without their natural, the, the buffers that are present in plants. So you can see everything from uh, hypertension to osteoporosis, to kidney stones. There's just a lot going on. It's a complex system. If we uh, eat a diet that is high in plants, getting our potassium and a moderate amount of sodium, whatever that is, uh, then our, our diet, our life is likely to have less disease. So lifestyle treatment of hypertension, this is not a new study. This is from December, 2004, but Dr. Kaplan is uh, considered one of the uh, kind of fathers of hypertensive research in, in the country. And he was asked to please review all the non-drug therapies for hypertension. Uh, and it was published in the uh, Journal of the Clinical Hypertension. I think it's still a good review. Quit smoking, that shouldn't be hard to figure out. Weight loss, increase exercise, sodium restriction. I'm putting a question mark on that uh, just because of some of the new data we have. Increased potassium is obvious. Calcium and magnesium can also make a difference. Stay away from caffeine. Uh, stay away from green or black tea. The, the, uh, again, caffeine intake is more likely the issue here. Uh, fiber, eat more of it. Fish oil may be helpful. Vitamin C, the data doesn't, you know, isn't really clear. There's some plus and there's some no difference. Vitamin E doesn't seem to make a difference. Uh, stress reduction is obviously uh, helpful and avoid drugs that raise blood pressure and avoid chronic, especially high intake of alcohol. So uh, I've kind of gone through my uh, slides for you here and I guess we're open for some questions. The sodium controversy, another look at salt and hypertension. I trust you found it instructive. Thank you so much, Dr. Godfrey. This is uh, such an interesting uh, topic. I always need to tell our speakers uh, the way that this meeting is working. Um, our participants are not here on Zoom. This has been sent to Vimeo and so forth. That's why uh, you don't see too many people, but we have actually people from all over the world uh, watching. Uh, we have uh, many questions uh, that have uh, uh, arrived for you. So um, here's uh, the first one. With so many guidelines for blood pressure, I find it very confusing. What is actually a normal blood pressure? <laughs> well, uh, you know, a normal blood pressure is a, a kind of a, an odd thought when you understand how the body works. In essence, as long as the blood is reaching the head and you can stand up and move around, 
the lower the blood pressure, the better. Of course, zero is not acceptable. We understand that. And the higher your blood pressure goes, the more your risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke goes up. The 140 over 80 was chosen because there was only a 50% increase in uh, risk of uh, event. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all kind of a compromise. In essence, you'd like to have your blood pressure low and uh, lower. And, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting mine to be less than 120. I like it in the one teens uh, for the upper number. So I hope that's uh, helpful for the, to the listening audience. <laughs> Another question. Um, uh, I understand that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is working on some lifestyle medicine clinical practice guides. Uh, can you tell us more about it? Uh, there are, uh, there is a movement to have the American College of Lifestyle Medicine work with others, uh, a, a uh, kind of a committee of experts to, to create guidelines. And, uh, Uh, your previous speaker, John Kelly, would probably be a better person to ask that of because uh, it's my understanding that he's uh, the leader of that group. So uh, it's a slow process. It's a volunteer process at this point. But as my understanding that these guidelines are being worked on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another question. Um, in your uh, clinical practice, What percentage of your patients respond to the interventions that you are talking about? Uh, that's a good question, but it's nearly impossible for me to answer. I can make some comments on it. I'm continually surprised by patients who are willing to make lifestyle changes. Now, that's a very pleasant surprise because it seems most people want just the pill. But those people who really want to make the lifestyle changes and put in the effort, many of them see a great response. And we're very pleased with that. I usually expect blood pressure to start falling within about a couple of weeks. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. When I see patients who are making a, intensive lifestyle changes and not uh, having their blood pressure drop, I start to ask questions and say, what's going on? Uh, too low of sodium is one of those things. I mentioned earlier a lady who had renal artery stenosis. Maybe I need to look at some of the, that 10% that's more rare. Uh, and, you know, as well, I, I had a, a, here several years ago, an attorney who came in to visit me and was plus, uh, plus frustrated because he's making the lifestyle changes and his blood pressure was still high. Indeed, his sodium intake was very, very low because he was very aggressively following. He brought in, interestingly, his... Uh, genetic analysis, like, uh, you know, 23andMe, one of those, and uh, shared it with me. So I went through to see his, uh, some of the problem genes and found that he had the ability to make a whole lot of extra angiotensin receptors. <laughs> so I, I told him to increase the sodium and indeed his blood pressure came down where it belonged. Wow. I mean, when you find these people, it's kind of a surprise, right? But just recognize that there is a danger from getting that sodium too low. And it needs to be in that kind of middle range. If they're eating a lot of potassium, kind of that middle range of sodium, from what I can tell, is actually, you know, very good. Uh, another uh, patient of mine, a professional woman, 
uh, on four medications for blood pressure, including clonidine, which I just hate to use because it'll cause high blood pressure, right? When you try to withdraw off of it. And uh, she was trying so hard. She'd been through the CHIP program and you know, her weight is, uh, it was coming down, but her blood pressure was still high. And I identified the sodium, started her on sodium, and she's now down to like half of one of the pills and her blood pressure's normal range. Now, when she gets anxious, it goes up, but that's not to be a, a big surprise. That, that's the way we act, what our blood pressure does when we have stress and anxiety. Very I hope good. that helps. Another question. Um, as a physician, I know it's not easy to make changes to medications. What book or course would you recommend me so that I can be familiar with this process? <laughs> Well, that's, I don't have a book, but I can give you some guidelines if you're a physician, okay? This is what I generally do. Uh, I get people going on a lifestyle change and watch their blood pressure. When their blood pressure starts getting down systolic less than 100, I say it's time to start cutting medication. And the ones that are uh, least beneficial are the ones that I first remove, generally by cutting in half. The blood pressure may go up a little bit. Next time it reaches 110, or they start getting symptoms, you know, standing up too quickly and getting a little dizzy, then I'll drop the next dose. I try it if they have uh, type 2 diabetes, for example, I'll leave them on their ACE inhibitors for a longer period of time. Uh, that'll be the last one I take away because of the kidney protection. They've really got to reverse their diabetes before we can safely remove that medication because of its protective effect. If the whole metabolic syndrome is gone, I, I, I've, yeah, I've taken people off of uh, their blood pressure medications completely. And of course, that's a happy thing, but it doesn't happen as often as uh, reaching uh, kind of low and normal levels of blood sugar and blood pressure in these people with metabolic syndrome. So go slow, take off the most onerous ones. I mean, the clonidine goes first. The next one for me is usually the diuretics because once you get the potassium up, the diuretic is really not so important. And the benefit from the diuretic is usually pretty small, four to five millimeters of mercury. So that's an easy one to remove and to make room for the next one. Very good. Another uh, question. Uh, uh, I heard that caffeine affects blood pressure. Why does caffeine affect blood pressure? Uh, caffeine is a vasoconstrictor and tends to stimulate, of course, the... Uh, sympathetic system. So I suppose that really shouldn't be a surprise at all. <laughs> and uh, one last question. Um, I tend to have low blood pressure. Do I have to worry? <laughs> well, you would have to worry if you were not taking enough sodium. Sodium is necessary for life. And I'm telling patients, I think you should have at least a teaspoon of salt a day. Now that can be spread through all kinds of foods. It's common, of course, in baked goods like breads. Uh, it's common in canned goods. Uh, so, you know, looking for about 2000 milligrams or about uh, a teaspoon, a, a half a teaspoon is approximately one gram of sodium. Half a teaspoon of salt is approximately uh, one gram of sodium. So in that range, it's where I try to encourage people if you're really low, then you may need to increase your sodium, especially if you're getting dizzy when you stand up. There is an increased mortality. There is worsening of congestive heart failure. And apparently even diabetes gets worse when your sodium intake is too low. So take some sodium. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.